0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerry and Terry, for inviting us into the life of of the church and into the community here. We are so very very grateful that you are that you are with us this morning and I know that this wasn't necessarily what we were all planning on but but here we are. And so with uh, our parking lot being the shape that it's in, if you may or may not know this, it's, a, it's an ice skating rink out there. There's tons of frozen snow and ice still there. And uh, we made the decision to have um, our in-person services canceled because we're never going to compromise on your safety or put that in jeopardy. And so even for those of us who are here pulling off this recording this morning, we slipped and slid our way into the building. So we're glad that you didn't have to do that. And with that being said, I just want to thank uh, Michael Culpepper, our technical director, and Sarah Bieri, our worship pastor, and the Corcorans, Jeff and Michelle, who are staffing our cameras. And, of course... Jerry and, and Terry, the McCurleys coming in as well. We're only able to do this because of them. We were hoping to have this uploaded by 1045. I don't know if we'll meet that criteria or not, or that goal that we had, simply because we've had a number of technical problems even when we got here this morning. And through prayer and the diligence of our team here, we're able to pull this off. And so we're very grateful for that. So if we missed that 1045 time, um, we apologize, but we're really glad that you're listening and watching this now that you are. And that being said, um, we know that this has been a storm that has deeply impacted all of us in some way, shape, or form. I mean, a number of you lost power through this. Um, There are some in our church family who literally had trees come through their homes as trees fell. Um, I was reading an article earlier this week that some 350 trees have fallen in the greater metropolitan area, and some of those have landed on houses, cars, fences, other structures, and some of you have certainly endured that. And, of course, we've all been shut up in our homes, and a number of you are probably feeling a little stir-crazy and wanting to get out. We totally get that. And so, just one more time, as we prepare to open God's Word, I want to pray over you and pray for our time in His Word. So, Lord, I think of um, just... How all of our lives have been impacted by this storm that has come through actually these these couple of storms and some are I've been without power some are still without power even this morning and there are some who have uh, Had some consequences from this they, they've had a tree literally fall through their home Or damage property or even a car and lord folks have had broken water pipes And I mean it's just been a lot of things have come with this storm And it has been a very vivid reminder <laughs> that we need you, and we need one another as a community. And so, Lord, as only you can, as we prepare now to open your word, would you use it to speak into our lives so that we can know you better, so that we can be more like you, so we can trust and obey you more fully, and so we can be the people and the church, the community that you have called us to be. And all of this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are talking this morning about the power of community. And once again, wherever you're joining us in the the online community, whether you're watching this today, maybe you're watching it later on this week or listening to it, what have you, we're just really glad that we can connect in this way. And so as we prepare for our time in the Word, I was reminded of some, some heroes, because really, in the passage we're looking at today, and in this book we're in about the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was an Old Testament hero, and we of course have heroes in our culture. I mean, consider some of these for me and I with me rather, and I know that there are some of you who are going to be podcasting or or listening to this. So, um, I. We're going to put some images up and we're actually having some difficulty with getting those images up and the PowerPoint. So um, and when that comes back online, if it does, we'll go to that. But I'll just describe these images to you. As I was looking for images of heroes in our culture, I went back several decades and then began to work my way forward. And the first, the first picture that, that came to mind was a picture of the Lone Ranger. Now, that was long before my time and probably some of yours. But the Lone Ranger was a hero some decades ago. And then there was John Wayne. John Wayne was a Western hero. Lots of movies about him. And then there was, of course, Batman, right? For, for you superhero folks. Batman, okay? And then if we continue to fast forward and get closer and closer, James Bond. James Bond was, was certainly a hero. And then we have, of course, The Mandalorian. This is the way. So we say, yeah, the Mandalorian. And we could go on and on. There's a number of heroes that are profiled and celebrated in our culture. But with those heroes in particular, John Wayne, uh, the Lone Ranger, Batman, James Bond, the Mandalorian, they all have something in common. And that commonality is they all work alone. Yes, they have sidekicks or they have occasionally opportunities to team up with others. But all those heroes, by and large, Work alone. That's the vibe of, of how they live their life. And as Americans, there's something about that that is attractive to us. I mean, it's a story that's told through other heroes as well in our arts, in our media. This idea that you can be self sufficient and capable with whatever you need all by yourself. And absolutely, there is a time and a place for that. But that could become a way of life. And we begin to enter into a way of relating to others that one pastor famously called as being the lone danger. And the lone danger is this idea that we don't need anyone else to do life with, that really we don't need community. And yet nothing could be further from the truth, right? I mean, this storm, if anything, revealed once again how dependent we are on a number of things, electricity, Pipes that don't freeze, trees that don't fall, but also our necessary dependency on each other. The need for community that we all have because we're hardwired for that. God's vision for you and me is that we would do life and live in community. And so today, yes, we're going to see this hero in Nehemiah, but he is not a hero who works alone. He is a hero who works in and through and with the power of community. And that's what's on display today, the power of community and really the necessity of community for you and me. So for some of you who may be new to this series that we just started a couple weeks ago, we'll catch you up the first couple chapters. So this story isn't a fable and it's not a fairy tale. This is a historical reality that happened a couple thousand years ago. The Jewish people had been um, taken into captivity by and large by the Babylonian Empire, the second world's greatest superpower at the time. And so the Babylonians had, con- Babylonians had conquered most of the known world. They came down and conquered the rest of um, Israel. And many of those folks were deported and exiled to Babylon and so in that captivity in that exile they began to lose in many ways their identity and their roots and yet there was one man who had this vision to do something about that and it was a vision that was given to him by God and it started with one of his brothers one of Nehemiah's brothers coming back from Jerusalem and describing the destruction and the disgrace and, and just the awful place that the people who had left, been left behind were in. And Nehemiah got this vision to do something about it. And so he prayed literally for four months. And then he got this opportunity because he was cupbearer to the Persian king, to the Babylonian king. And so the Babylonian king noticed that his cupbearer, Nehemiah, was distraught and upset. And so he asked him, you know, what's wrong? And basically, Nehemiah said, the city of my ancestors' lies in ruins. And the king said, well, what do you want? And as the story goes and as history tells us, Nehemiah very boldly asked for resources and authority and help to go back and rebuild the city. And the king granted his request. He gave him authority. He gave him resources. He gave him uh, responsibility. He even gave him an armed escort back to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story and where we connect into last week. And here it is, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10, where we kind of left off last week. It says, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And by the way, once again, our technical production team works wonders, and now our, now our PowerPoint's working again. But if you remember with me, These guys were really upset that someone was coming, as it tells us, to promote the welfare of the Jews and to really to rebuild the city. And there's a lot swimming around in here, and we looked at some of this, but Sanballat represented a people group known as the Samaritans who would become ancient enemies of Israel. And Tobiah represented um, the Transjordan peoples, again, who would be ancient enemies and were ancient enemies of Israel. What these two had in common was Sambalet was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah most likely was the governor of what was known as the Transjordan, where modern Jordan is here today. And what we didn't, I don't think if I remember right, we didn't go into this last week, but what was significant about their response was how they were responding and reacting to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah 5 tells us that when the king sent And blessed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem. He did so as the governor of Jerusalem. He made him governor. And so now when Nehemiah comes, for all those other reasons we looked at, in addition to that, they are threatened by Nehemiah because he's a threat to their position. They were jealous of him. This was political, it was positional, and it was personal. And it actually has significant bearing on where we go today, this very reality that Nehemiah is governor. So as we go now into the story and how what Nehemiah does when he first comes to Jerusalem, I want you to watch for how Nehemiah lives out being the governor. How does he come into Jerusalem? And this is what it tells us. I went to Jerusalem, and now this is Nehemiah telling the story, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mats with me except the one I was riding on. And this is so significant, what we're reading here. Now, if it was you, or if it was me who had just been promoted, really, to governor, given all this authority, all these resources, all this responsibility, wouldn't there be this temptation to call attention to that? I mean, we come back to the city with with all this in mind, and, and how would we introduce ourselves? How would we go about our business? Well, what's lacking here... Is anything that says that Nehemiah came into the city with all this fanfare and self-promotion? You know, he's posting, hey, I'm, I'm on the scene now. Here I am. He's taking selfies and uploading those. No, none of this is going on. It tells us that he was there for three days and then goes out at night to get a firsthand look at what's going on. And we see here that God is beginning to stir with him an even deeper vision to do something for Jerusalem, to to, to rebuild the city. We see this vision beginning to take place, and look how he shares this vision with the people. So he continues to go throughout the city. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire, which had been so then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as of yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So Nehemiah goes and he takes a firsthand look at what needs to be done, and he does it at night. Not calling attention to himself, but having the opportunity to see for himself what truly needs to be done. And it tells us in there that there was a part of his circuit around the city where he had to get off his mount, probably a donkey, and walk because there was so much rubble and so much debris. I mean, it was a disaster. This was an enormous task. And actually, as we read this description, it's one of the most detailed descriptions we have of what the city was like when the Jews were in exile. It's very detailed and he's basically making a counter clock circuit around the city and he still hasn't told anyone. So now watch how he shares the vision of what God has put on his heart and put before him. Then I said to them, so he's saying to all the people, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, once again, there's a lot going on there and there's so much there for you and I to learn from. And you've probably noticed before as we've gone through these earlier chapters of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is constantly speaking in the plural. He's constantly using plural pronouns. He's constantly identifying with the people. Remember in the first chapter, he prays on behalf of himself and the people when he's, when he's talking to God. He sees himself as, as, as one of the people. And that's, that's so significant. And he appeals to them on the basis of relationship, which we'll come back to here in just a minute. But that is significant. He tells them, this is the trouble we are in. He identifies with them. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I'm not just going to tell you what to do or show you what to do. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and we are going to do this together. We will no longer be in disgrace. Who wants to live in disgrace? Anyone want to sign up for that? Because again, in the ancient Near East, especially in this time of history, the status of your city reflected on you as a people and on the God or gods you believed in. And so for Jerusalem to be destroyed communicated to to many people that there was no God. And it it was disgraceful to them as a people. And then he begins to tell them about what God has done to not only give him this vision, but to give them the resources to actually rebuild the walls. It was really miraculous. And he told them, very importantly, what the king had said to him. Because remember, 13 years earlier, history tells us this very same king had stopped the earlier group of Jewish people who had gone back to Jerusalem because he had been told, he had been lied to, that they were beginning to rebel. And so he shut down the construction. So ironically, the very king who stopped The reconstruction of the city 13 years ago is now standing behind it and is now supporting it. And of course, that would be encouraging to the people too. And what we see here is something that's very significant, not just for leadership, but really in all of our relationships. And it's this reality of position power Versus personal or relational power. You know, last week we looked at something that I had learned in in college as a hall director and and a resident assistant. And that was the difference between reacting to a situation and responding to a situation. Which again is important for relationships. Because usually my first reaction is not my best one. Especially in circumstances where I might get frustrated or angry or whatever. I don't always react in the best way. But when I choose to respond, when there is a relational pause there, then I really have an opportunity to respond in a way that honors other people and that honors God and allows the Holy Spirit to work through my life. We looked at that reality last week. Well, we were also taught, as hall directors and resident assistants, that you don't start with position power, you start first with personal power when you're interacting with people. You appeal to people on the basis of relationship. Because what is the counter to that? What do we see so often in our culture today? We see people in positions of power abusing that power, overusing that power, using their position power to get what they want. And it doesn't have to be that way. Now, yes, there are certainly situations where we need to use position power. But how often do we miss the opportunity to appeal to someone, to work with someone, to lead someone on the basis of relationship through personal power? Nehemiah leads, by and large, through personal power. That's what he's doing here. And just so we're on the same page, this isn't about being manipulative or always getting your way. This is about being authentic. And being real and investing into other people and utilizing relationship to accomplish something together. And that's what we see going on here. So he appeals to them in all these ways. And, you know, they get to the point where, hey, let's stop talking and start doing, right? And so he gets them all excited and let's build the wall. And they say, no. No, that's not what happens. What is it that they say? They say, let's start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. My friends, we see one of the first realities of the power of community when people come together. And that's especially true when they come together around shared vision. The people shared the vision of God with Nehemiah. And that's pretty exciting and that's pretty compelling. So what happens when a community shares a God-given vision. What does that look like? I'm so glad you asked. Let's back up for a minute. What's our vision here at Grace as a church community, as a church family? Well, we actually need to go a little further back than that. What is our purpose? So we talk about this and renew this every Vision Sunday in June. We deliberately take time to pause and just go back To make sure we're keeping the main thing, the main thing as a community of Jesus followers. So this is a reach back to Vision Sunday last June. Now, in all fairness, I don't expect you to remember this. I'm the one who spoke about this and I barely remember it. But there are some things that are enduring that we want to come back to. And one of those things is our mission, our purpose as a church. We're about loving God, loving people, reaching people, and developing people. And I know this may feel a little forced, but do it with me anyway. Humor, humor one of your pastors here. Will you say this out loud wherever you are, wherever you're watching or listening to this? We're about loving God, loving people, reaching people, and developing people. Now, in fairness, any Jesus-following, Bible-believing, disciple-making church could and should sign on to that. That that's that's really a corporate mission of any church that loves Jesus. That's how we've chosen to articulate it here at Grace. And really, we see ourselves as being a culture of being Jesus followers who extend grace. That's kind of our motto. We don't ex- necessarily expect you to know this. We just want to live it. And when I first came to Grace some 18 years ago, when we began talking about just the ethos of this church community, because every church community has its own distinct culture and ethos. You know what? What is this culture like? What continues to rise to the surface? It's this reality, this is, this idea of grace. And again, just so we're on the same page, grace can be defined as God's unmerited, unearned favor given to us for the sake of right relationship with Him and others. But it's also empowerment by His Spirit, to serve and love God and others. And this is a church that really seems to live this out. And again, in what we're about to look at together here, we're not patting ourselves on the back. We're just acknowledging a reality of this community of, of people, that grace runs deep here. And 18 years ago, when I first came to this church and was considering if, you know, this might be a fit for me and, and vice versa— I asked the leadership team, I asked the elders and staff, what's this deal with this emphasis on grace? Tell me about that. How is this a place of grace? And I just want to give you a couple things that really drove this creation of this motto. Because two years after I came here, the elders and staff and I put this together and came up with Jesus followers extending grace. Because it reflects who we are. One of those ways is how this church cares for one another. And some of you have been on the giving end of that in these storms, and some of you have been on the receiving end of that in these storms that we've been having the last week and a half. I've talked with a number of you who have had your power go out. And I've also talked to a number of you who have had your power go out, and you've had people reach out to you from your community group or even from your neighborhood, but from our church family saying, hey, come over to our house. We've still got power. And so that has been going on. And a, a, a deep part of our fabric here at Grace is we've got a number of people who just who love to serve by cooking and bringing food to folks who are recovering from sickness or illness or in a crisis where they've lost someone. And um, we have got some incredible cooks in this church. I can, I can vouch for that because I've been on the receiving end. My family and I have some of those meals. But once you experience that, then you want to become a part of that. And yes, there are other churches that do that, but that tends to run deep here. We have a care team that so powerfully distributes our shared resources to folks who are in crisis and who need help. When you give to the fellowship fund here at Grace, which is separate from the mission and vision um, giving that we asked you to do earlier this morning, when you give to the fellowship fund, those resources. Literally put food on the table for people who don't have it. Repair cars, pay rent, pay medical bills. Last year, this church family, in addition to all the other giving you do to the mission and vision, which we'll talk about later on this morning, this church family gave over sixty-eight thousand dollars to the care fund last year. Do you know how many people that helped? That, that's that's remarkable. That's incredible generosity. During COVID, when everything was shut down, this church family contributed over $100,000 to help people who were out of work, who had lost their jobs during COVID or what, what have you. That's a really incredible, powerful extension of grace. Something else I was told about, and then we'll move on here in just a minute, when I first came to this church, how has grace lived out in this church? Is that in our history, we've had a number of folks who have been in vocational ministry like, as missionaries or as vocational pastors, what have you. And they've come to a point where they've hit burnout or they've had a difficult transition or they themselves have been in crisis. They've had to leave that for a season and they've come to grace to heal here and, and, to, and to get rejuvenated and refreshed. And sometimes we've known who they are. Sometimes we haven't. It doesn't matter either way. But the reality is this is a safe place. For people to experience and find grace from all walks of life. And we see that play itself out over and over again. We want to grow deeper in that grace. That's our vision. And we want to go wider in that grace. And this is what we talked about last year. Our vision in this season is to grow deeper and go wider. In telling the Jesus story and in living the Jesus story. So just front burner here. Last year, we talked about as we tell the Jesus story, as we want to be more deliberate in that, how are we going to do that? Well, we came up with this idea of 21 days of prayer and and Bible reading, which we did last year. We're doing it again this year. In fact, it's literally going on right now. You can jump in and join that. 6.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. We'll be on Zoom go ahead and join. You can get to that from our homepage, hit the events button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can become a part of that community. But we're doing that. Last year, we did family Easter evangelism training where we took those of us who want to just learn some, some, some ways that we can naturally, lovingly tell people about Jesus and then go out and do that before Easter. We did that last year. We're going to do it again this year. We had church in the park throughout last summer. And just worship together and invited anyone passing by or grilling near us to join us. And that was great. We have this thing called Alpha that's coming our way later this year. That is just one of the many ways we're looking to go wider with the Jesus story. But we're also wanting to go deeper and grow deeper in the Jesus story. We want to be about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. We want to live the Jesus story. And there's a number of tools here we have at Grace to help us do that. We're, we're, we're living out the spiritual practices in our community groups and with what we offer in large groups as a church family. Um, we have the fasting practice by way of example that we're doing together in this season. We have Bible studies. We have all sorts of resources, but... What we're really leaning into now as a leadership, as elders and staff, is how we comprehensively do that and sustainably do that, not just through our programming, but really how we organize and focus our resources as a church. So we ask that on February 12th and 13th in particular, that you would be praying for the staff. The staff are going away for two days and we're going to work two days exclusively on our discipleship here at Grace. What does that look like? How do we expand that? How do we deepen that? Where are the holes? What do we need to do to do this more effectively? Because we share a vision together as a church family of reaching this community for Jesus Christ. And we want to do our part in doing that. So we got work to do. And so did they. So they, they, they got to work. And this is what happened. As you begin to read chapter 3 now, there are 32 verses in great detail of who did what. By way of example, verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section. The fish gate was, re- was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. Merimoth repaired the next section. And it goes on like this for 32 verses. And, and if we can just, you know, Be honest and be real. It's awfully tempting when you come to a section like this for your eyes to kind of roll back in your head and then to jump to the next chapter or the next section. I don't need to read that. And yet, true to form, it is the Word of God and there is relevancy and applicability and practicality in all this for you and me. Look at, representatively, who's doing the work on repairing these walls. We're told, as we just saw in that verse, the priests are doing it goldsmiths and perfumers are doing it. Rulers and women are doing it. And typically women weren't mentioned in writings like this, but they're singled out here. Levites, the assistants to the priests, they're doing it. Merchants are helping repair the wall. People like you and me, common people, are are repairing the wall. The whole idea of this is everybody, catch this, the entire community is sharing the work. And that is the power of community, is sharing the work together. And this is is amazing to me. What did they accomplish? These walls, which had been lying in ruins, that many of them were just rubble. Not all of them, but most of the sections had been damaged. Many of them had been razed to the ground. For a hundred years, they had been like that. Over 100 years, actually. And there have been attempts to do this, but the enormity of the job, the lack of support, the opposition like we looked at last week had prevented these walls from being built because the entire community came together. Catch this. Because the entire community rolled up their sleeves and did this work together through the power of community, what had lain in rubble for 100 years was repaired in 52 days. Less than two months, the walls and the gates were rebuilt and repaired. That is a picture of the power of community. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So everybody rolled up their sleeves and did their work. No. This is another one of those pearls that's embedded in this list of names and who did what. Look at what it says here. The next section, as it's going on to describe the sections, was repaired by the men of Tekoa. Okay, good job, men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Really? That doesn't sound very noble to me. Does that sound noble to you? And we're not told why. Did they they think that they were above that, that that kind of work was beneath them, that that was other people's job? I mean, we, we don't know what the motive was there. We just know they didn't participate. You ever experienced that? Ever been working on a job or had a task or had a project to do, and you're supposed to be working on that as a team, and you look around and there are folks who aren't participating, they're spectating. You know, for me, my first exposure to this was in school, actually middle school and then high school, where we began to work in teams. And my first exposure to that was teaming up with these folks who were assigned to me, and we had this project that we were working on in this science class, and it became apparent real quickly who was doing the work and who, and who wasn't. Anyone who liked those school work groups? Yeah, the ones who raised your hands, you're probably the ones the rest of us carried. You were probably watching the rest of us do the work. And of course, I'm teasing. Of course, I'm teasing. But we've all, at some point, been in that place where there's work that needs to be done by the team, but not everyone on the team is, is doing it. It's interesting here that Nehemiah never talks about these nobles again. I mean, seemingly, he ignored them and pressed on with what needed to be done. But it does beg the question about how we think about and approach work and what work means to us, not only as individuals, but as a community. And again, just super quickly, we need to do some quick theology on work because we want to avoid the extremes that can come with work. On, on one extreme here is we're looking at this example of the nobles, and they're doing nothing, seemingly. And laziness, doing nothing, is not how we are to approach work. In fact, Scripture has a lot to say about that, Old Testament and New Testament. That that is wrong, that is broken, that that is sin. On the other hand, the other extreme we can sometimes go to, and frankly, I think this is just as prevalent as the other extreme, especially in our culture, is this reality, this idea of workism, and that is we over-identify with our work. We get too much value, too much identity from our work. That also is broken and what the Bible calls sinful. And some of us may be thinking, well, work is a four-letter word and it's just something you got to do. Well, please understand that when God created everything, including you and me, he created us to work. We are hardwired to work. Work is a good thing. Because it's a God thing. God works. We're made in his image. We we work. And God's vision for us is not only that we would work individually, but that we would work together corporately, that we would work in community. Because once again, God's vision for us isn't That community is an option. God's vision for us is that we work together in community. So here we go. In this community, are you sharing in the work? Or to use the language of Nehemiah, are you putting your shoulder to the work? And one of the threats to us as a church family is we're a large enough church, is that it's super easy to think, oh, someone else will do that. Someone else can can roll up their sleeves and and work at that. And yet, that's, that's not true. God has brought this community, you and me, as a people together, to share this vision of a God who comes and redeems and restores and renews and repairs this world. And we are part of that divine rescue mission, which means that we all have this opportunity to roll up our sleeves and and get to work. And I want to give you just a couple examples. This is inspiring to me. I hope it's inspiring to you. So a couple weeks ago, I'm walking in the lobby, and I see someone I don't recognize wearing one of our Grace name tags, identifying themselves as someone who is doing the work and who wants to um, be available to help others and serve others. And I walk up to her, and we'll we'll call her name Cindy because I didn't get permission to tell her story. And I said... Hi, Cindy. I'm Jay. Nice to meet you. Oh, yeah. I've been coming here about a month. Oh, great. And, uh, yeah, um, Pastor Piper met me and said, Yeah, welcome to Grace. What are you going to do? You know, How can you be part of our community here? And she said, You know, I know what it's like to be a guest because I in some ways still feel like one. I've only been here a month. But I know what it's like to walk through the doors and to not know anybody and to wonder, You know, what's going on here? Am I going to be welcome here? Is someone going to talk to me? Am I going to find my place here? Am I actually going to find community here? And she said... I can do that. I can expend, extend community because I've found community. And so make me a greeter. I know what it's like to be a guest. I would love to talk to people who, who are guests because I was just one myself. Or I think of my, my mother-in-law, Jamie's mom, who for many years called Grace home before she went to be home with the Lord. Her health was always fragile, and really her health was always in a bad place. She had multiple health problems, was gone more than she was here because of those health problems. But she still found ways to serve. She would connect with our children's pastor and get crafts, and either we would drop them by her house, or sometimes if she was able, she would come and get them. But she would do those and then bring them back. She did that for vacation Bible school. She did that for an ongoing basis with children's ministry. What was inspiring to me about that was she found a way to serve she found a way with what she was capable of doing to to work. And again, we all have to grid this, and we all have to figure out what this means for you and me. But my challenge to you is if you want community, you need to be willing to be a part of the community. You need to extend and give community. And part of that is about serving, about getting engaged. Because God has created us to do life together as community. And many of you are. Many of you do. What I can confidently tell you is in the arc of the years I've been here, this is not an 80-20 church, meaning 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. That is not true at all here. This is a community that by and large gets it. And if you're new to our community, man, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. You are a welcome addition. But be prepared to be part of the community. Don't just come and spectate. Participate. Because it's one of the many ways God's going to work in your life. And, you know, I want to celebrate one of the ways that we have worked together. That is profound and significant to me. And this involves our resources. You know, necessarily so, we are quick to come to you when we are in need as a church family when there are needs in our church family that we can't meet because we don't have the resources to do so. We want to be just as quick to come to you and celebrate when you have responded and when you have um, been generous and sacrificial as so many of you are. So this is this is fun. I'm going to give you a fun budget report, believe it or not. But this is just one of the ways that we do the work together is as an act of worship, just like Terry and Jerry earlier called for us to give together. We give as a community and pool those resources together and then use them to bless others. And we have this thing called our mission vision budget, which is our plan with how we use those resources. And this is December. And just by way of frame of reference, we started a new budget in September. And it seems like every fiscal year we start a new budget. It's an increase. And it takes some time to build up to that increase. And so we went into December if you'll remember, about $40,000 behind budget, which is, that's not a good thing. That's a pretty deep hole for us as a church family. So we came to you and said, hey gang, this is what's going on. If you can, please give. If you haven't been giving, please give, but let's be generous and let's see what God will do. Well, this is what he did through you. December finished at 178% over budget for giving. So you can see the dollar amount there. Our expenses were well under budget because we've been trying to hold our expenses as as low as we can. But my friends, we finished December $117,000 to the positive because of your generosity. And yes, there were a couple very significant gifts in there. But by and large, most of that was from those of you who just gave what you could as well, which it's all exciting and all compelling, but this is, this is the fun part. Year to date now, you not only caught us up of that $40,000, you've put us ahead $75,000. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Now, I can just hear the finance team in my ear as I'm giving this good news that, you know, there can be a tendency when we are in this place for some of us to stop giving and to think, oh, well, you know, we don't need those resources anymore. No, usually January, February, or March are usually real lean for us as a church family. And I think it's true for our families, our individual families. Um, So thank you for your consistent giving. Thank you for your generosity and sacrifice. Talk about the power of community. Then that's gonna enable us to continue to reach into people's lives and, and change lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, we have a shared hope we have a shared hope you know this story we continue to read this history we continue to learn from out of the old testament in the book of nehemiah is more about is more than just i should say rebuilding the actual walls of the city it's more than just repairing walls it's about renewing hope and we looked at this reality when we started this series in the description of that section we read just a few verses of it talked about not only repairing the walls but repairing the gates because the gates of a city were the strength of a city as well as a vulnerability and so it was fundamental that those gates were repaired and that those gates only let in what needed to be let in by way of example I still remember this. It just made such an impression on me. But in high school, the first research paper, so we're reaching way back here. The first research paper I ever wrote was on a guy by the name of Genghis Khan. He lived in the 12th century, and he was scary. He conquered more of the known world at the time than Hitler, Napoleon, and Alexander the Great combined. He literally conquered the entire known world. And he was ruthless and he was merciless, but he was also shrewd. And by way of example, when he came to the Great Wall of China, which was built to keep guys like him out of China, when he came to the Great Wall of China, instead of going over it, instead of trying to go around it, he actually went through it. And the way he went through it was he bribed a gatekeeper. And then his entire army went through and they conquered all of China because one gatekeeper had been bribed by the great Khan. Has someone or something bribed the gatekeeper of your heart this morning? What have you let into your life? What are you believing? Where is your identity coming from? You know, as I enter this story with you that we've been reading out of Nehemiah, I wonder how many many people who had been left behind in Jerusalem who were living in that rubble as ghosts, despondent, discouraged, dismayed, probably wondering, is this all there is? And despairing as a result. I wonder how many of them had resigned themselves. Well, this is the way things are always going to be. I'm always going to live in the rubble. This is, this is what I need to settle for. This is what life is all about. I wonder how many of them had lost hope or become so apathetic. They just genuinely didn't care and were just going through the motions of life because of what they allowed themselves to believe or to put it another way, what they had allowed through the gate of, of their heart. Some of you are there this morning for whatever reason. You have resigned yourself to whatever you're up against in your life. This is the way it's always going to be. And if you're honest with yourself, you've lost hope. And then there are others of you who something else has made its way through the gate of your heart. Your heart's been bribed just like Genghis Khan did that gatekeeper of the great wall. And so some things have come through that wall, that that, that gate rather, that should have never been able to come into your life, but here they are. You have an addiction that you cannot seem to escape. You have this sin, this selfishness that keeps rearing its ugly head in your life, and there it is. Or, illustratively with what we've talked about here this morning, you realize in your heart of hearts, if you're really honest with yourself, that work is more important to you than it should be. Boy, with all of our routines getting disrupted and many of us being, you know, homebound, maybe unable to work or do what we normally do, why is that so important to you and me? Why does so much of our identity tend to come from that? Or some of us, quite honestly, we get our identity, we get our value, we get our security from what we have, from what we see, from what's in our bank accounts, from what we own, from what sits in our driveway. In fact, next week, this very community is going to do battle with that very thing. Nehemiah is going to have to confront this community about their greed, about them wronging their neighbors. And Pastor Matt will take us into chapter 5 in that story next week. But all that being said, there are those times when something bribes our hearts and all of a sudden we're going toe-to-toe with something that we should have never allowed into our life. My friends, we have a God Who can rescue us from that? Who can strengthen us in the heart of that? And who gives hope? Do you realize that we as a community, we through Jesus Christ are the hope of the world? The church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Do you realize that we have resources and scope and reach that no other entity in this world has? Do you realize that of the 8 billion people who live in this world, 2.4 billion strong identify themselves as Jesus followers? That is larger than any country, any government, any organization, any empty religion there are more people who claim the name of Jesus than than any other religion. And we could talk about, okay, well, how many of them are true believers and how many of them are just going through the motions? Okay, park that for just a minute. The reality is we are the hope of the world and we need to take this hope unapologetically, perseverantly, uncompromisingly to this community and to this world around us. And we do that as a community. And Jesus tells us the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. So we remember who he is. We remember who we are. And you remember who you are. And we'll wrap up with this. I was recently talking with a guy who's been in our church family, in our community for a while. We'll call him Mike. And Mike literally pulled me aside not long ago and said, you know what? This church, this community has saved my life. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, when I came into this community, I had no purpose to my life. I didn't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was going through the motions of daily life, but, but my life was like a, like a stack of rubble, like a pile of rubble. And I knew that I needed hope, and I found hope here. And I found hope through this community that has loved me. And he serves in one of our ministries here. He's part of the work, part of the community. But he said, Jay, I don't know where I'd be without the hope of Jesus Christ and this community and how they've loved me. My friends, that's the power of community. And so as you and I go into this week, once again, not knowing what it holds for us, not knowing what's ahead of us, we do so with hope. We do so as a community community. And so my prayer for you and me, and I'm going to pray that here in just a minute, is that God will give you and me opportunities individually and us as a community to bring hope to people who need it. Because that hope, that grace has been given to us. So let me pray over us. Lord, thank you for this time to be in your word. Thank you for this time to seek you together. Even over video, even over audio, we can do this as a community together. And so we ask that you will give us opportunity to speak hope into someone's life. Lord, we pray that if we've let something through the gate of our hearts, the gate of our lives, that we know is broken and sinful and wrong, we would call it what it is and then ask for your help and hope to rebuild what needs to be rebuilt. And Lord, in all of us, would you renew our hope in the one true God, the God of Nehemiah, the God of the Jewish people, the God of us, the God who is never changing and who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, thank you that you're with us. Empower us by your spirit as we go now into the rest of this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for watching or listening. Thank you so much for gathering together once again as a community. Remember who you are. Remember who he is. Remember who we are as the church. So go and live for him. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for sermon audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.